0: Hello, and welcome back to the American Society for Stereotactic and Functional Neurosurgery podcast. Um, if you haven't taken a listen to our first two episodes, check out our Twitter account and Buzzsprout to uh, take a listen. And if you haven't followed us on Twitter, uh, the ASSFN Twitter handle is ASSF Neurosurgery. Uh, I'm Denise uh Vanderbilt Neurosurgery resident, and I'm here with my podcast co-host, Dr. Robert Zeichman.
1: So, I'm a fourth year neurosurgery resident at Temple University Hospital. I'd like to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Jason Schwab, who is the Surgical Director of Movement Disorders and Epilepsy at Henry Ford Health System. Before we get started, I wanted to briefly introduce our topic the ASSFN position statement on laser interstitial thermal therapy for the treatment of medically refractory epilepsy. For those of our listeners who are newer to the topic, epilepsy affects about 1% of the general population. And in about one third of patients with epilepsy, seizures are not controlled medication alone, what we refer to as medically refractory epilepsy. For medically refractory epilepsy, surgery may provide complete freedom from seizures in up to 70% of patients with temporal lobe epilepsy when appropriately selected. And then for temporal lobe epilepsy, this has traditionally meant surgical resection or removal of about four to six centimeters of the anterior temporal lobe. In the past several years, Laser interstitial thermal therapy or laser ablation has emerged as a minimally invasive means to achieve similar results by instead of resecting this tissue, ablating it with heat energy. Dr. Schwab, is there anything you would add?
2: Um, No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I think listeners should know whether they're neurosurgeons or non-neurosurgeons that epilepsy surgery has been done for over 100 years. It's one of the most successful surgeries we do. The number needed to treat to get a positive life-changing effect is two, which is better than almost every other surgery or medication known to man. Uh, Epilepsy tends to be um, sort of underplayed into how life-threatening and dangerous certain types of epilepsies can be, Uh, and so we know that epilepsy surgery is really underutilized in the United States. Um, and so frankly, one of the ways that we're hoping that uh, this problem will be addressed is with less scary techniques like LIT um, that you know may be a, a better option or s- safer option, or at least perceived as safer by uh,
1: neurologists and patients. Thank you for providing that perspective. Now, before we get too far into our topic, um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your clinical interests and your your research interests?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm a functional neurosurgeon, as as you mentioned, at Henry Ford in in Detroit, uh, metro area. Um, I trained, I did my residency at the University of Pennsylvania and then did fellowship at the University of Toronto. Um, And I've been on staff, I've been out of training for, I guess 17 years and I've been at Henry Ford about 12. Um, I have a pretty broad functional practice. I think some people tend to focus in one area or the other, Um, but my practice includes epilepsy, movement disorders, pain, facial pain. Um, And I also do uh, have a pretty uh, significant practice in complex peripheral nerve. Uh, and an adult hydrocephalus. So I tend to do the whole gamut. Um, In terms of my research interests, we've tended to be early adopters and try to promulgate new uh, technologies here. Um, And a lot of my work has been around that uh, in pivotal clinical trials, as well as with quality improvement uh, and healthcare delivery.
1: Um, so for our next question, Tanika.
0: Yeah, so, um, we were curious to know why did the ASSFN decide to create a position statement on, uh, clinical issues such as MR-guided lit for epilepsy?
2: Well, we've, we started the process, frankly, just before the FDA, uh, gave approval for this technology for epilepsy, but, but to be honest, like, one of the main drivers was that, we're hearing from our members and and we've been encountering problems with getting insurance approval for these techniques. Some of that is is frankly your own fault uh, in that we need to have updated guidelines and and our most recent uh, guidelines had stated that this was kind of a new and experimental therapy and Therefore, insurers were like, well, we're not going to pay for it if it's uh, new and, and investigational. The in general, our feeling was that, that this was no longer investigational. we had had enough uh, cases in, nationwide that we felt that it was safe and pretty comparable to selective amygdala hippocampectomy. Uh, and frankly, a lot safer than existing techniques for another uh, lesion that can cause epilepsy called a hypothalamic hematoma, where it's really become the standard of care. Um, and and I think you know one way to think about it is is you know is that this is really just a tool um, lit, which is laser interstitial thermal therapy. For those who don't know, involves putting a laser. Uh, probe into a structure that you wanna ablate or burn. Um, And the real change that that made this really viable is that you can do this in an MRI scanner and look at the temperature of different pixels and voxels in real time. So um, you can put a laser fiber in, bring the patient to MRI, run laser energy through it and get a very discrete ablation of an epileptogenic focus while monitoring it in real time to make sure that the temperature isn't going too high in in other structures that you don't want to damage and making sure that you have enough damage in those areas that you want to damage. And I think for many of us, you know, this has really just become a tool now that the safety has kind of been borne out. And, you know, we really didn't need prospective trials to say that we could use a Cavatron ultrasonic uh, device, you know, CUSA or something like that um, to take out a brain tumor or take out a temporal lobe rather than using just gentle suction because it's not that different because it's just a technology, it's another tool in our hands. It's not necessarily really changing how we think about epilepsy. Um, it, it, it's, it's just another tool in our arsenal.
0: Right, absolutely, and a, and a tool that it's important to spread word about and have some some guidelines to uh, how to, on how to apply it. So that makes sense. Thank you.
1: So I was wondering, what literature did you use to make the recommendations, and what was the process like in putting them together?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was really looking at case series. We don't have a randomized controlled trial. Um there has been a trial ongoing that actually I'm you know one of the participants in uh that is sponsored by Medtronic for laser ablation for um temporal lobe epilepsy. And frankly, the recruitment for that has been very slow because there really is no clinical equipoise at this point. And I think that was really a large part of our feeling why we needed this position statement. Um, so it's hard, you know, you can't do a randomized control trial and say okay we've got you know 20 people we're on this airplane we're going to give 10 of you parachutes and you know throw all 20 of you out of the plane and we'll see you know who does well and who lands safely it, no one's going to risk being randomized to the group without parachutes and and i think at this point you know for some, th- something like laser ablation you know patients just really don't want to be randomized to uh laser ablation versus a big open surgery. Um e- even though big open surgery is very safe and very effective, that's just not where people's heads are at. Um, and, and so you know even the trial that we were participating in had a lot of trouble recruiting um, because people could just get services outside the trial with, with most insurance payers, um, but we're having trouble with others. Um, so, um, so that's part of the issue.
0: And what, what are the main points of this position statement that you want providers or even patients who are reading this to, to really take away?
2: Well, I I think we, you know, we started by really reiterating who should be considered for epilepsy surgery. And, and I think that's probably the most appropriate. I, I mean, in general, patients who have failed to appropriately chosen medications at appropriate doses with um, localization-related epilepsy, they're not going to be cured by some new medication. There is one new medication that's just come out that you know a lot of our neurology colleagues are very excited about, um, but in you know, I think in general, we might see it most of 15%. Uh, seizure-free rate or significant seizure uh, reduction. But in general, if you've failed two appropriately chosen meds, um, your likelihood of becoming seizure-free on a new medication or combination of medications is only 4%. And that hasn't changed in 20 years, um, even with most of the new meds. So this, this new medication may be slightly better than that, um, but, but probably not hugely better than that. Um, And conversely, as I said, bad epilepsy is dangerous. So if you have three grand mal seizures a year, you know, your likelihood of dying in the next decade is about 25%, um, let alone all the problems that you are going to have from having significant seizures uh, and and the morbidity, you know, separate from the mortality. So I think that's, that's part of the important part of the statement Um, for this type of uh, procedure we're talking about, an area that can be safely resected or removed um, is is really what we're looking at. It's not functional uh, cortex whereby, or functional part of the brain where if you ablate it, you're going to make your patient no longer cognitively the same person um, or leave them with significant neurologic deficits. Um, So that's important. You have to really define where the seizures are coming from for this to work, same as you do for resective surgery. Um, And and then a lot of the other restrictions are pretty similar. We really do this in the MRI suite. So you have to be able to have an MRI. um, And just like with other surgeries we do, you have to be able to undergo anesthesia. You can't be on significant blood thinners uh, that can't be held. But in general, you know, our recommendations are really based on the experiences of many groups looking at these and then comparing them to uh, data with open surgical procedures. Um, And many of us have found that this is a really good option. It's it's much shorter length of stay. Frankly, the patients tend to tolerate it better. They almost invariably go home the next day. And and frankly, for some deep-seated lesions where there's morbidity, trying to get there through an open surgical approach, th- this is probably better um, in, in that you're not having to, to go through as much normal tissue um, to uh, be able to get rid of that part of the brain that's causing seizures.
1: So one question I had was, is there anything that the statement doesn't cover or uh, address particularly? Um, would that be covered in the future and how would you see the position statement change as new trial results come out or case series come out?
2: Yeah, I mean I think I think based on the literature, you know my view is that it, things are pretty similar between laser ablation and open resection, and as long as you've really defined um, where the seizures are coming from, so i think I think that's pretty clear. There may be some potential benefits from this approach by not going through as much normal tissue. So there might be some benefits neuropsychologically that might be borne out with more evidence. Um, and, and frankly, you know, more data is better in terms of figuring out um, safety profiles and best practices. We published a paper um, as part of a multicenter group trying to define you know, what area do you really need to ablate? Uh, to get the best results, you know, looking at post-operative MRIs across a number of different centers. And that was about 250 patients. Um, So I think those sorts of things are going to be helpful as well. Um, And and then I think, you know, most of this work has really been done in terms of um, mesial temporal lobe epilepsy and hypothalamic hemorrhaginomas. I think the really big uh, areas of kind of, we're starting to see use that will become more important as we get more uh, data is or things like tuberous sclerosis lesions in children, uh, periventricular heterotopias and other um, disorders of neuronal migration that cause epilepsy that might be amenable to this um, and might frankly be preferable for an approach using LIT as opposed to an open approach. Um, But we'll have to see.
0: Right, absolutely. Um, So how do you see this position statement impacting patient care, and how do you apply it um, when you're evaluating uh, an epilepsy patient for surgery? I I can't
2: say that it's really changed my approach so much when I'm talking to a patient. I mean, I've tended to talk to patients about this as an option. We've been doing it for a long time at our center. Um, I, I think what's making a difference and and we've already seen uh, some changes in terms of insurance coverage policies. Um, And that just makes it easier and and gives patients more choice.
0: Right, absolutely. And if any of our listeners want to uh, read the ASSFN statement, uh, it is available on the ASSFN website. Um, Thank you very much, Dr. Schwab, for sharing your insights with us. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners?
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, for, I think for neurosurgical trainees, you know, this is a really exciting field, um, that there's a lot of need for people who are good and want to learn how to do these techniques and be able to offer them uh, to their patients. I think for patients, I think it's really important to understand, um, just how bad epilepsy can be and understand that there is hope um, for you know, good outcomes. Uh, we have so many more technologies now than when I was in training, where it was really only open resection and vagus nerve stimulation, you know, so now we've got all these different techniques, including lit and responsive neurostimulation and deep brain stimulation, where we can really help people at very low risk Um, and frankly, you know, even the way we investigate patients to figure out where their seizures are coming from is so much better, safer, and more easily tolerated than when I was in training, which frankly is not that long ago.
0: And, uh, I'm excited to see where it'll go, uh, in my time as an attending as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yes. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Take care. Bye. Thanks again to Dr. Schwab. Um, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to the next episode in a few weeks. And to our listeners, we'd love to hear from you on social media about topics you would want to hear or questions you have about the podcast. We'll see you soon.